Welcome to episode 80 of the Bulak podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay in Amman, Jordan, and with me today, as usual, is Marsha Links Quayley in Rabat. Hello. Hi, Marsha. Hi. And joining us, and we're very excited to have her with us today, is translator Alice Guthrie. Um, Alice, wh- where are you? Ex- are you in Bristol? Yeah. Well, thank you very much for connecting with us today to talk about um, your new translation, the first English translation of the complete short stories of the Moroccan writer Malika Mustadraf. Um, This is entitled Blood Feast. It's coming out from the Feminist Press, and it's a really remarkable, uh, fascinating collection. So thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's really lovely to be here. Great. So Alice Guthrie, just for those of you who don't know her, is an independent translator, editor, and curator specializing in contemporary Arabic writing. Her work often focuses on subaltern voices and activist art. She's currently compiling an anthology of queer Arabic writing set to appear in parallel Arabic and English editions, Bloodfeast might be her first book-length translation, but since 2008, she has been publishing translations of many poems, short stories, and novel excerpts, including groundbreaking work by Rasha Abbas and Alaa Lahil. She also has programmed the literary strand of London's biannual Shebaq Festival and teaches literary translation at the University of Exeter and the University of Birmingham. Uh, so I hope that is an adequate introduction to Alice, who's also, you know, an award-winning translator and I'm sure does many other things. <laughs> oh, um, that's great. Thanks, Marsha. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, but mostly today we want to focus on this, this new translation, which has been uh, many years in the making. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, if we, we want to start with a reading from, from this, but let's, let's set it up a little bit. Can you tell us just a bit about this, this short story that you're going to read from? I can. And I also just um, want to jump in and make sure that we mention that the, the UK edition is going out under a different name. Um, so the US edition is Blood Feast, which is being put out by Feminist Press, and that's the the kind of original, but the same the same book is coming out in the UK from Saki under the title Something Strange Like Hunger. So, and I love the Saki cover. Actually, I oh, need good. to get the Saki edition as well. It's <laughs> fantastic cover art that includes a gigantic cockroach. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, good. Um, okay, so you wanted me to kind of set up the story that I'm going to read from first. Yes, please. So, yeah, I'm actually going to read from the title story, um, Blood Feast, and it's one of Malika's longest stories. Um, A lot of her stories are super short, at least by kind of Anglophone standards, literary standards. And um, it's it's partly the title story because I thought that Madhubut Adam or Blood Feast or like sort of Banquet of Blood was such a powerful phrase and and because it's it's so such a powerful description of kidney dialysis um and many other things are linked to health issues um but it's also kind of the title story of the collection because it is really 
the key place in which she sets out, in which Malika sets out and frames the reality of life as a kidney dialysis patient, which is what she was and actually what she died of um, at the terribly young age of 37. Um, and, it, and it's where she really sets it out in, in the most powerful and sort of clear way. Um, and so I guess I wanted to honour that. And, and it's also, um, so it's very political in that way. It's a kind of activist piece, um, I would say. But it's also, I think, very interesting in terms of um, what she does stylistically, because it's, um, it's an example of this device that she loves to use. She seems to love to, to use, um, which is to set up a character for whom we're simultaneously being moved to feel kind of great sympathy and everything on the spectrum around kind of hatred and disgust and loathing at the same time. And I, that's, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but I see kind of queer aspects of her work in sort of queer as a verb, you know, queering things. And I feel that she, that's one of the ways that she did that really, sort of having many things going on at the same time and non-binary kind of writing. Um, so that's some of what I love about the story Blood Feast. And we're going to come in in the middle, um, in the story, we have the the, main, the the protagonist is is somebody who's kind of a newbie to the world of uh, kidney dialysis and has only recently got sick and is discovering to his horror that he's going to be a lifetime um, patient in this way. And but he meets somebody in the hospital who is who is one of these classic Mustadraf characters in that we are moved to feel multiple things at the same time, as I was just saying. And the bit that I'm going to read is part of the monologue of this second character who's a jaded, experienced kidney patient who is kind of uh, teaching this newbie the ropes about what it's going to be like basically to be a, um, a patient, not necessarily from a super poor background, but just anybody who doesn't have access to privatised uh, healthcare, who's reliant on the state healthcare system. This character is letting him know the terrible news about what that's going to be like. You'll learn how to kiss hands and feet. You'll beg and bow and crawl. You'll prostrate yourself, go as low as it takes to plead for the price of treatment. Because if you don't do that, you'll sell everything you own. That is, if you actually own anything in the first place. And you'll get into debt and you'll see how your friends and your parents and your children all run from you. Bit by bit, you'll sell off your very bones and your blood drop by drop to cover the trust of treatment. Don't get me started about the government making out like they don't know what goes on. They know everything, what we keep private and what we make public. They even know what goes on in bed between someone and their spouse. But they look the other way. They ignore our existence. Once, many years ago, I don't remember exactly when, an official came to the hospital. He smiled for the TV cameras and pictures were taken of him kissing a sick little girl. The photos were printed on the front pages of some of the national newspapers. And after that, he talked a lot of big talk. And we believed him and clapped for him and smiled. We practically wept at his kindness. But whenever we went to him to ask him to keep his promises, he wasn't in or he was in a meeting or... or it took a while, but eventually we understood that our job was done. We'd applauded him and given him our blessing, 
sung his praises in front of the TV cameras, and we would not be needed further. That experience taught us not to applaud anything and everything. Of course, on the rare occasion that one of the officials would remember us again and pass by, escorted by his subordinates and his cameras and his journalists, they would oblige us to attend and smile and clap in all our disgust. And afterward, we would turn away and leave without waiting for anything or expecting anything. We finally understood the rules of the game. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things I really love about that passage and this story in general is how deeply specifically Moroccan it is uh, and and how you can feel yourself in a in a Moroccan clinic and a Moroccan hospital room throughout and mm. but also how strongly relatable that is to anyone I mean as an you know and personally as an uninsuranced um, American um, mm. y- you know I think there are so many relatable points as well and you know of course politicians maybe, just about anywhere um, coming into a hospital <laughs> mm. to be to see and be seen and then mm. and then that's about that's about all they need out of that experience absolutely and and it's interesting isn't it because um, I don't know I feel like this thing about um, international literature being called kind of universal or, or relatable it sometimes can be problematic right because it can be overused mm. like hey don't worry it's universal like <laughs> but but in this case like it really painfully is and actually when I was looking through this story again thinking about which passage to read I was like my god so much of this would be is it, it just sounds like a portrait of the NHS right now and like stuff that you know I'm not even going to name him on the podcast but our UK premiere is doing right now so there is a real um relatability to it yeah but I feel like this is also really, you know, like this is part of where her politics uh, are really coming out strongly because she's she's writing that as a character saying that, but that's clearly something that she really wants to get across. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a way, she doesn't appear in the story at all. Obviously, these characters don't seem as if they're, um, you know, avatars for the author. But on the other hand, yes, uh, you, you definitely feel a very strong condemnation of of the healthcare system in general. Mm. I mean, what you wrote in your afterwards, Alice, when you described in some detail um, her, you know, years and years of um, dealing with herself with the shortcomings of the healthcare system and particularly this story about her um missing out on treatment because she didn't have the money to self-publish her first book and becoming iller because of that, Mm. I I mean, was so heartbreaking and difficult to think about um, all the physical suffering um, that this talented young person went through and um, the, the lack of care that she that she faced um it's yeah. a it's a it's a very sad story um just uh in terms of the unfairness of that and and of course as she as this the story is not um uh 
you know, didactic. It's it's got the vividness as all of them do of like very particular voices. Um, mm. But clearly, uh, she's she feels like this is an injustice not just to herself, but to like everybody in her position, everybody mm. who needs care and doesn't get it. Right, no Absolutely. matter how ter- shitty of a person they might be. Yeah. Well, well, that's the other interesting thing that you alluded to. So this character who goes on at length telling the other patient all the things that he uh, is up against, le- like a number of other uh, male characters in the stories, um, also throws off uh, quite a few casually sexist uh, remarks and mm. there's a couple um when I went back to look at the sections that I had thought about us reading a, a number of the ones that I think are very well written and very vivid as as I looked back over them are written from the point of view of men mm. who are uh you know being misogynist basically and yet the way it's written uh first of all it doesn't feel like a contrivance or a device that she's using to just condemn their sexism. It feels like she's really imaginatively kind of put herself in their point of view. You get, again, an individual voice, whether it's the 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 young unemployed man whose sister is marrying a foreigner and who uh, is sort of resentful of all the girls in the neighborhood that are unavailable yeah, I love to that him. Guy. Right. Mm. It's mm. very vivid, and 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 again, it, and, or the husband who you know confides at the end of his monologue of how his his wife actually enjoys being beaten and how all yeah. women do, and those are very striking passages. Um, yeah, and and even even in that in that story, which is a day in the life of a married man, it's called, and even in that story. I think she's really doing that. She's really employing that device about having us, our source of loyalties be pulled in multiple directions at once because there is something of his, there's, for me at least, there's something in his kind of revulsion at his wife and his lack of desire uh, that, that does move me to sympathy for him. And then it kind of, but it's shot through with all of this blatant misogyny and then, you know, that sort of terrible ending about him saying that she enjoys being beaten but it's like we're being asked to to kind of question that and and Malika was clearly really fascinated by um by men and the male voice and actually this is why it's so interesting what happens with um female writers um especially from the global south where but in general you know women writers are are I had to push back quite a lot around marketing stuff about this being marketed almost like chiclet because I feel it it's well I mean obviously it isn't chiclet at all but also because she's really it's not it's really not all about women you know it's really like she's very very interested in the male experience and and what and and trying to get behind you know the male gaze and inhabit that and think about what that's like as well as the female experience you know she's she's really interested in all of it and she's really working with all of it I think Right. And, yes. and of course, she's she's very interested in experimenting with style and and with these multiple sort of shattered viewpoints all at the same time and, and layering them on top of each other. So, yeah, yeah I think there is a, a thing with female writers, yes, being imagined that it's autobiographical or, you know, that they're 
speaking in their own authentic voice that things are often promoted this way. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it would be a huge mistake to approach this collection in that way. But at the same time, but it's also really interesting, isn't it? Because at the same time, there is a really strong um, tradition in contemporary Arabic writing. I mean, I'm talking sort of, I don't know, the last 50 years, let's say, to pluck a number out of the air, really. But that actually the biography of the writer and the protagonist in sort of politically engaged fiction um, do intersect quite closely. And that there is, and I mean, that, I don't know that it's, it, there's an interesting kind of tension there because it, it, um, not to go to one extreme or the other, you know, not to completely take it as memoir, which it clearly isn't, but also not to um, disconnect it entirely from her experience. And actually, I think that, you know, this her focus, her sort of interrogation of illness and the nature of illness um, is a really key element of her work and obviously sexuality is as well and gender and class and poverty and various you know other key things like that but I feel like sometimes her focus on illness can be kind of overlooked um, in readings of this work and I think that that maybe reflects a wider cultural dynamic um, in our society around that we kind of flinch away from looking at illness through art or something. I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. Wow. I mean, personally, I find the illness the sort of the most. Compa- I'm I'm always like drawn to people's mm. depictions of their chronic pain and their chronic illnesses. But so as as we talk about these autobiographical um, aspects, if you could, Alice, just give us um, because you do such a lovely job in your translators afterwards, sort of a sketch of her life and how her work was interwoven into that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because we're talking about her without having really introduced her. So, um, so, I mean, what I would say, I mean, as I kind of tried to say in my translator's note, but what I would say now, the kind of caveat is that, you know, I'm hoping that what I, I never met her. She died before, before I encountered her work. So I, I don't know, you know, the, the, my version of her life story is really carefully researched, but you know, um, inshallah, it's it's accurate um, within reason. Um, so yeah, she was born in Casablanca in 1969, and um, she died in 2006, um, so age 37. And um, it's not completely clear uh, from the sources that I've been able to access exactly when um, the the kidney um, disease was discovered, but it, it was, uh, I think, probably in her teens, and. Um, and because of um, the sort of um, complications around dialysis and the quality of dialysis and even I think probably electricity supply in the hospitals at times, um, it, was, it was not of very good quality and so her, her health kind of deteriorated o- over time. And she, um, and, and yeah, and so towards the end of her life, she was, you know, walking on crutches and, and looked very ill and, and was essentially housebound, really, for the, the final years. And the final years of her life actually coincided with, you know, pretty much the beginning of the Internet or not really the beginning of the Internet, but the beginning of public access, you know, mainstream public access to the Internet. And so um, I think that was a real lifeline to her because she was able to communicate with people from her you know, from her bed, really. Um, 
and and sort of have um international um connections and um intellectual debates and stuff without le- um, leaving the house she'd been um she had been on track to go to university but she wasn't able to complete that um because of her health issues um and and yeah she lived with her family um in Ma'arif, in Casablanca, she so central Casablanca, and um, and she really um, took to writing. It seems as a it was it was both kind of her mental health uh, strategy for survival, and she very much talks about it in that way as kind of being being a drug and to her really and a passion um but also it seems like it was kind of a substitute for an academic discipline in some way um and her first uh so so when she died she'd only published uh one well is it an autobiographical novel is it a semi-fictionalized memoir we don't really know um but this let's call it a novel her first book um that she had kind of self-published she'd had to pay for that to be published in 1999 from a tiny press that's since folded and actually the way that she paid for it as I think Ursula just alluded to was um through skipping some medication doses and saving the money for for the publishing costs which she later regretted she's on record as regretting that um in terms of how it impacted her health but in any case her her book came out and um caused a massive stir because it's a albeit fictionalized but um was taken as memoir and to some extent was quite likely based in I mean this is the big question but we think it was quite likely based in her own experience so it's a first person um account of surviving multiple childhood rape by members of close family and community and and, and it's lots more than that as well um it's a really sort of sharp examination of of um gender and patriarchy and class and and um sex work and how that kind of props up the domestic economy in many cases and it it's also a really interesting examination of kind of different kinds of emotional bonds and there's a certain kind of queerness there and so yeah probably no surprises um if i say that it went down really badly <laughs> and um, so is that still in print sorry no okay no so none of her work was in print so so she, so she wrote that book big scandal big reactions and then she had a short story collection and a few other short stories published separately which all together are what make up this book and then that was it basically and they all fell out of print um so yeah that's that's some i mean there's so much more i could say about her life and who she was um but you do say like she, she was, so she was, she ended up in this kind of limbo where she, she was sort of forgotten, but at the same time she was, she had been admired by other writers and, and was known in, in Morocco in, in people who had were concerned with literature. And at the same time was sort of at risk of, of a kind of, you know, being erased or forgotten and her, and her work forgotten. Right. And there's a bit of recovery both in your translation and in other, I think, forms of interest that people have taken in in her work more recently. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was such a funny situation, really. Perhaps this is really common. I, I don't know, but 
so when I first when she first came to my attention, I think in something like 2014 or 15 was when um, the wonderful translator Emma Ramadan did a, a special on Moroccan uh, women writers, I think it was, or Moroccan writers for for words. I think without it borders. was just Moroccan fiction for. For words without borders, yeah, and she and so I was like um, brought on board to to translate something by her by by Malika Mustadraf, and there, you know, that's how I started knowing about her. And at that point, it was like, yeah, you could uh, many people knew her work, and she was kind of really highly rated in the sort of Moroccan, I don't know, let's say cultural elite or whatever, you know, literati. And then, but but you couldn't get hold of her books anywhere. And then there was various, I mean, there was a publication of sort of articles about her in tribute to her, but but her actual work wasn't reissued, you know, so it was in this funny kind of limbo. It reminds me a bit of what's happened with Ahmed Bouanani oh, really? in recent years. Well, you know, he he also had so much of his work was either never published some of it ended up physically destroyed his movies his books and his daughter and other people and Omar Berada who you mentioned was was also instrumental in I think in, Absolutely. in your connection yeah, yeah. with mm-hmm. well he he was also uh, one of the people who has worked a lot on bringing attention to Buanani and it's another one of these like really avant-garde Moroccan artists and writers who was at risk of sort of almost leaving no legacy um, except for the dedication of you know, his daughter and and some other people who really admired his work and he's been really kind of like snatched from the from the claws of forget of of of, of for, for forgetfulness and brought and brought back into the limelight it's it's a very interesting process I find this these acts of sort of rescuing writers that we yeah. love um, I, I find it very moving always yeah, super important. And I think, you know, something that I found really interesting and co- quite confusing in those early years of starting to kind of look for her work and look for the rights and just look for people that knew her and so on and so on was was um, that there would often be, there were kind of, well, one thing is that there was some sort of stories circulating about her that turn out not to be true. Like, so for example, there's this legend that Mohammed Zafzaf had really, mentored her and had been like this wonderful sort of literary uncle this avuncular figure and I and I you know that's a lovely story and so I got quite into that and took that on you know um and 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 perhaps he did in a way but what the only sources that we have in her own words about that in Malika's own words say absolutely you know without a shadow of a doubt that he kind of obstructed her really and and mm. wouldn't engage with her work as I go, I go into that in much more detail in the translator's note. But you know, I, so I, I was, I was fascinated. I mean, and upset. But you know, I was fascinated intellectually to notice that this, this, this sort of much more palatable story that fits in better with the patriarchal notions about men teaching women how to properly do things was was had great traction, you know. And it really fits everybody's narrative that, of course, the old man of literature would teach the young woman, you know, and actually. Perhaps she taught him, you know, perhaps he got a lot of um, inspiration from her ways of writing. You know, I don't, I don't think that quite works chronologically, but, you know, it's like, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So you, can, you can definitely see resonances between their short story um, work, although hers, I think, are stylistically more innovative and and are funnier. 
they're, I mean, they're both interested in marginal voices and in, you know, voices that aren't otherwise heard in, you know, sort of Moroccan media discourse. Yeah. I mean, her style is so interesting because it's, there's a kind of freshness there. There's an economy that I think is very hard to achieve. I mean, mm-hmm. like you said, they're very short and they're often kind of almost abruptly broken off at the end and and sometimes also abruptly started i, I mean and it and and, and it, i think it's 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 quite a gift to have this sort of knack for 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 pulling for starting things on on and off that way and for making them so condensed um and for having these details that like bring a character, you know, in front of your eyes in like a line or two. Um, there's a, there's a, a freshness to the language and a, uh, all these different idioms that she uses. Mm. I wanted to ask you also about that. I mean, there's, there's, you know, um, so many different like registers of, of Moroccan Arabic and of references, whether there's, you know, literary or folk and, and slang and, and all this stuff. And what was it, what was it like translating it? So, yeah, just to jump back to the first part of what you were saying before we get into the stuff about um, register and Derija, the thing about her, her style and the kind of short and funny ways of making stories. When I first um, came to the feminist press with this, uh, manuscript because you know like not only it hasn't appeared in English it hasn't appeared um, in any translation and the last four stories in the book you know only exist on hard copy most of them were sort of you know in a cupboard in the university like it was quite obscure in a way this way anyway so when I brought it to the feminist press I kind of was like yeah but I don't know what you're going to really make of these stories because some of them don't even really have a narrative arc as such, or they just kind of start and stop in the middle of nowhere. And and I just remember that Lauren Hook, who's this brilliant um, editor, the senior editor there, was like, "That's okay, you know, we're the feminist press. We we take on like weird outsider work. Like we're not worried about that." And 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 I just was so pleased with that approach, you know. That she's like, "Yeah, we're really interested in the kind of strange uh, work that women." produce and let's let's go for it and I I just feel so grateful for that confidence that they showed you know because they obviously they had a translation sample from me and a sort of you know some synopses of the stories but they didn't get to read them in the original so it's a big leap of faith um so yeah I just wanted to kind of call that out so but going back to the language um question um yeah it's interesting because the last four stories in the book are as far as we know, the last things that she wrote, and they, they were written a bit later than the rest of the collection. So her short story collection, Tonsis, uh, came out in 2004, and these last stories were published in, in 2006 and 2007, so one of them actually posthumously. And um, so, yeah, they were written a bit later, and they seem to have... She got a bit more... She got more playful in the way that she would use language. So she started... Um, putting in bits of French and putting in more derija and um and and she was quite kind of excited about doing that there's a there's a book with some of her letters between her and her friend and she sort of talks about it with some glee about you know is anybody going to understand me you know how are you going to 
see how you get on her friend's Palestinian and uh, Aida Nasrallah, the poet, and she's saying, mm-hmm. you know, see how you get on. How are you going to manage to understand this? And she had a certain, you know, it, it was exciting for her in some way. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of the some of the references in there for me as a translator, I mean, some of the bits were just so hard to track down, and without without the the help of um, some amazing Moroccan friends, I, there's no way I could have done it. You know, I mean, the story, the um, in one of the stories, they're talking about a um, like an old kind of fairgrounds uh, candy that used to be sold to children, Juban Kuluban. I mean, I I guess I would have tracked that down eventually on my own, but the the little song that the seller sings is is just such a maze of funny old references. Um, even for the Moroccan friends that helped me, it took them them a while to kind of work it out. <laughs> and then I and then I managed to put it into rhyming English. So well done me. <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah, and there are it, all these the sort of funny things that she packs into such small places like P Lot, you know, which you yeah. expand in your in your translator's note to, you know, you know, help us sort of re-see things that mm-hmm. we might have and and I think that, you know, I, I like that experience as a reader, actually, you know, enjoying the story, reading the translator's note at the end and then going back and reading the story again and uh-huh. seeing things in it that I hadn't seen before. Oh, that's dedication, isn't it, Marsha? That's what we imagine. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that we imagine going on in Casa Arab Lit. <laughs> <laughs> but but as it reads very, very well, I mean, really, actually, seriously, I know you were joking before, but well done. Like it, all this, all the registers in English, I know you say there's there are things that, you know, are, are always lost in translation, but um uh, I think it's it, it works very well, and even I had one passage that I loved. There's a scene where a woman is thinking back to her marriage night, her unhappy marriage night, and uh, you know, to a husband who she did not end up lo- loving particularly. And he, she says, he walked in, and the first thing he did was slap me and say, "The cat dies on day one," and I mm-hmm. knew that in this context, I was the cat. Now, first of all, it made me laugh out loud. And and second of all, you don't need to know the expression. Mm. I mean, the expression comes out from the context and maybe you don't get all the connotations and maybe you're not, sh- but you understand what happened in that scene. Mm. It, it, works, it works beautifully, in fact. The strangeness of the expression, actually, the surprise of it was part of what I enjoyed. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean... Um, thank you for complimenting my work. I worked hard on it, but I have to say I had an absolutely phenomenal editor and we did a really, really close um, process, collaborative editorial process, which was just wonderful. And so that helped a lot, you know, because, you know, when you're also, you've been working and working and reworking on stuff and you can't tell anymore what sounds uh, strange or oblique and what sounds like it's over explained and you know you, you're far too close to it um, and also you know like as you can hear I'm British and then um, it was being published by an American a North American press and so there was a certain there was a lot of work that went on in terms of kind of Americanizing the text and and kind of not and finding that middle ground and and all of that um, so yeah, the, a lot of work has gone into getting it to the point that it's at. Um, but I think it's interesting with those those sayings and those phrases because you know it's like 
that whole debate, I mean, translators and translation students know about this whole thing of foreignization versus domestication that you know, literary readers might not know. But yeah, it's sort of kind of obvious. You can tell what the terms mean. And, and there's lots of theory and, and debate around that. And what and 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 some people don't even like, you know, glossaries and afterwards and that it's kind of patronizing or it's over. Um, yeah, over explaining. Um, but and it is interesting that some of these things just really work in their own right, even if you've never seen them before. I think a lot of things do. I mean, because we can fill so many gaps as readers and as listeners of stories, right? Like we don't have to know exactly. Like we do that all the time. Exactly, these stories. Exactly, yeah. We we can make them work for us. And and in fact, there's like you know, Marsha was saying before something so recognizably Moroccan, like the specificity, even if it's something that you is not part of your childhood, but we have all have things like that from our childhood. So again, it, I, I think it, it can resonate in, in, in surprising ways. Of course, it's good to have context, a little bit of context. I, it added immensely to my, I feel like understanding, you know, just understanding or retrospective enjoyment to read the note because it's a lovely account of her life. Mm. Um, and it does. I do. I do give, like that. It came after though. I did yeah. appreciate that. Right. I pushed for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you know, like I really, I think it's problematic um, without naming any specific names um, that, you know, sometimes these, these translated books that are, that begin with the explanation because the implication is that you're not going to get this until you've read my essay on it, you know, and that's not what I'm trying to say at all. I'm trying to say, here are these stories. And then this is also what I think is interesting, but like that right. way around. And I think that that's politically important when, you know, when writers from the global South are being brought into the, you know, globally hegemonic global North language, etc. cetera. You, you got to, you got to, you know, that's that's an attempt at decolonizing translation has to take on board those questions. And it might seem like a small thing, whether something goes at the start or the end of the book. But I think that's the stuff of life and, as well as, you know, what goes on the cover and so on. Right. So, mm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. I have to admit that when the notes in the front, I always read the content first and then go back to it. I, I don't. Yeah, read I sometimes feel pressured to read, to read the notes in the front, like <laughs> it's this, the instructions. I don't, you must I don't read want it to be spoiled. I want. No, it's I don't, like I don't, reading yes, a movie yes, review yes, before watching I the agree. movie. Yes, like I'm right. happy to read it after, but I want to have my own first impression. Right. And right, then, right. and then, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have some things explained to me and and see, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, but uh, I actually, I'm so I'm more likely to read it when it's placed at the end. Um, mm. Sometimes I don't go back if uh, if I have skipped over it, whereas I did really appreciate it in the place that it was. I wanted to ask you, Alice, um, if you have a particular you as a translator. So you you know you were working on work by Rasha Abbas for some time. Her sh her short stories, which are also, I think, very interesting stylistically, um, and you know take short story writing in in different interesting directions and and now these this short story collection as well if if there's something that draws you particularly to the short story versus um you know versus the novel which is you know the sort of i don't know economic driver of the publishing industry or whatever you want to call it um 
I guess I'm going to give a really pragmatic answer, actually, which is um, I think that um, it's probably more because of the nature of the, the kind of commissions that I've often had that have been, you know, I mean, I think partly there are more short stories in Arabic. There's, it's more of an established genre, isn't it, than in, than in English, I think. Is mm, that right? That's yeah. the impression I have anyway. And so, like, they just come along more. Um, but if you are being commissioned to do something for, like, say, Words Without Borders or The Common or places that I've done a lot of work for over the years, um, and they're looking for a unit of text that's, I don't know, three to 5,000 words or something like that, then then a short story is very attractive, right? And so if that if you're doing a lot of work like that, um, that you tend to have short stories on your radar, perhaps... Um, that's a sort of um, boring answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all, because I think, you know, sort of these pragmatic considerations are so important. And Ursula and I have discussed this sort of um, why so many key works by, by women writers are, are maybe more likely to be short stories. Um historically versus novels. And I think, you know, some of that you have to put down to pragmatic things, such as a short story is a thing that you can fit in between other things more easily Absolutely. than a novel. So like the stroller in the hall or whatever. But the, the mm. I mean, that was the case with Malika as well. So like um, some of the, sto- it's not completely clear which, exactly which, but there was some of the stories um, possibly from the whole uh, collection or possibly from these last four that I mentioned that were published later were meant to be a novel one one or maybe more was actually treatment for a novel that she ended up turning into a short story because she her health didn't allow her to complete um, or to expand it she couldn't really take on doing another novel and she could write short stories kind of in between dialysis sessions um, and so I wonder how many stories like that are hidden in the background of, of women's lives and women's economic lives. And yeah, and I mean, you know, there's something else pragmatic to be said about the nature of of trying to make a living as a literary translator in the economy that I live in and in the literary landscape that I publish in, um, in which actually you can't you can't make a living as a literary translator. And I do lots of other freelance things around Arabic, but you know, without getting sort of the violins out, like a work like this, actually one has subsidised it a lot with other work because of the way that it's remunerated and how long it takes. And I think that makes a kind of situation where unless you've got a heteronormative domestic setup, i.e. you've got a publisher, with um, a publisher, a partner with a normal salary, or you've got, you know, intergenerational wealth or you're retired on a pension or you're a total workaholic, I think would be probably the other option. If you're none of those things, then um, how are you actually going to manage to do literary translation? And I just, um, I don't know, I guess I could illustrate it with like, it was publication day for this book the day before yesterday, and there was loads of publicity going on in the day. And, you know, I did an interview and blah. And then actually that evening, what I was doing, um, when you might think that I was kind of, I don't know, bathing in champagne, surrounded by stacks of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually, it was actually, I was actually doing a paper round, like a newspaper delivery round that I've taken on to supplement my, my income. So I was kind of trolleying around my neighbourhood. I mean, you know, it's a lovely local, cooperatively owned, radical newspaper. But it's just, I just, I don't know. I just think maybe it's interesting for people to know that um, 
uh, that's how we're living, actually, as literary translators. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and I, I would also say that, you know, for Malika to have, you know, you might, uh, whatever, and one might think, oh, that's so, you know, she had to pay money to have her first book published, but that's actually incredibly common um, in, in Arabic publishing to have to contribute in some way to having your, your book published. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that like like and and lots of um, writers have to pay to get their book translated, don't they? And so like this right. is the first um, book, this is the first book length translation that I've published, but I've actually done several book length translations that have been paid for by the writer themselves, either because they're sufficiently well off to do that or because they get a grant that for whatever reason haven't come to publication as yet or whatever. So so that um, so the fact that she Malika kind of um, managed to break through the barrier of being a young woman without her own independent means by diverting her medical um, funds, right, to get her book published um, is a particularly kind of extreme example of that. But as you say, Marsha, it's not, it's not like a one-off by any means. No, we've had these conversations, like, like Marsha says, about the difficulties. I mean, like you say, the economic difficulties of of writing, of translating, of publishing, and whether it's in the region or outside of it, um, and finding that balance between work that you're willing to do um, for the love of it, but but then having to, if you're going to make if you're going to make this your your life's work, having to find a, a different you know, arrangement for that. And, and like you said, this is a challenge today. And, and then it, it was especially for, I think, women writers um, in the region where women's employment rates are very low, where the expectations of how you're going to employ your free time are, you know, still, I think, so unfair in terms of the all the commitments to family and to having a family in the first place and then to doing so many things for the family. Like, it's difficult for male writers to make a living, but they're more likely to have a job and a wife who's taking care of everything else for them. It's it's really hard, I think, for for women writers still. And so then, you've, like, you, like we're saying, you've maybe the short story form allows you to, you can carve out a little bit of time without making a huge commitment that you're not sort of allowed, that you can't find the space for, that's a form that you can engage in. And I only finally read the short stories of Alifa Rifat in Egypt recently, and, and I feel like she also makes me think of this, this kind of situation. She was prevented by marriage for from writing for many many years she was mm -hmm. basically her husband told her not to and she mm -hmm. didn't for like several decades mm -hmm. um and she also is a very talented very original short story writer um with again this this gaze on gender and sex and i mean she's very different stylistically but this unflinching gaze and wanting to say things that are happening that everybody knows but that maybe nobody talks about um in Mustadraf mm -hmm. you see this real like 
I think what brings the sex and the illness that those two concerns together is the way that she like really insists on looking at bodies. Yeah. 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 I mean, yes, sex, pee, shit, and illness all in the same area together. This, this kind yeah, of look menstrual at blood yeah. and snot. Yeah. And, 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 and actually that was something that I wanted to, sorry, I just interrupting you, Marsha, but that's something that I kind of wanted to, mention just that something that I remember really striking me early on and then all the way through the translation process was just how um, how visceral how kind of rooted in smell and reaction um, her her work is and so because you know there's this kind of quite stark thing quite often where you're not really being given and I, I want to say that this is true in quite a lot of Arabic writing where you're not necessarily being given a lot of description of the room or scene setting or whatever and she does that and she does the stark thing I mean without much description but then what she does come in with again and again is disgusting smells and people feeling <laughs> nauseated and the snot and like <laughs> You know the child like slurping its his slot snot, and the guy with the kebab stall, yes, like, picking his nose and then turning over the <laughs> kebab with the same hand. But the kebab tastes so good that you just can't stop yourself <laughs> eating it. I mean, there's a kind of sensuality there. Actually, there's a kind of like oh, I just can't stop myself kind of quality to that as well, right? You know. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a fantastic portrait of us as human beings mm. in all. You know, unflinchingly not looking away from either the sensuality or the disgusting aspects of it of us yeah yeah yeah. and I guess also what she's kind of doing in a way is saying you know what who gets to decide what's disgusting this is the this is all the disgusting stuff that's in the everyday this is in my everyday experience this is the smell of the bus this is the smell of the, the shop this is the smell of someone's breath the smell of somebody's sweat as they pull the dirhams out of their like bra or whatever, you know, like the vinegary smell of the mm. woman. So she's like, mm. you know, who? So who gets to say that I'm disgusting for having talked about paedophilia or, or, or I'm, you know, the, it, who controls the narrative around what's disgusting? I think that's probably something that she's questioning as well. Mm. That's a new idea that I just came up with on the spot. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> I think that's definitely true. Although the that's kids what happens when you come on is. our podcast. <laughs> You're just in. <laughs> Ideas are born. You heard it <laughs> <Exactly>. here. <laughs> yeah, and I and I think also what's cool about these scenes that are they're disgusting. There are there's disgusting elements to them. They're they're very powerful and they but they all feel motivated. Like it's not a sort of it's not sensationalistic, it's not gratuitous. I think you're right. There there's a there's a reason that she's insisting on these details. They do something. Um and uh, and there's there's some of them in 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 one of the other readings that we had talked about. Um, maybe we'll end the episode on it actually. Um, so she has a story called claustrophobia, and it's um, entirely set on a bus. A woman decides to ride a bus, uh, and uh, we were going to ask you to read the 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 final part of this story in which the woman is. Uh, interacting with other passengers on the bus, they're interacting with each other. Um, and it is this sort of, you know, whole scene of, uh, you know, friction between people on the bus. Okay. And there's quite a lot of different voices in this. It's, it's quite sort of cacophonous. So we'll see how that comes across. <laughs> the man's breaths were still too close to my ear. 
I tried to pull away from him a little, but it was so jam-packed in there, such claustrophobia, such a stink of sweat and farts. The man was blatantly rubbing himself up against me, and if I stayed silent any longer, it would be taken to mean I was enjoying the game. You bastards, even on the bus. Hey, brother, oi, you, can you give me some space? It's rude what you're doing, shame on you. You really can't think of a better place to do that than here? I'm not doing anything. It's just crowded in here. And anyway, someone's squashing me from behind too, and I'm keeping quiet. I'm putting up with it. If you're enjoying this game, that's your business, but I'm not. If you don't like it, get off the bus and take a taxi. Growls and snarls and expletives rumbled around the bus. The driver thundered, Silence, or I'm rerouting the bus to the nearest police station. For God's sake, I desperately wanted to get out of there. What devil gave me the idea of taking this damn bus in the first place? The tortoise stopped for the tenth time. No, the bus wasn't even a tortoise anymore. It had become a mythical beast now, devouring this immense quantity of people. I heard a raised voice. Crammed in this tight between the passengers, there was no way I could see who was at the front or the back of the bus. Brothers, sisters, I'm a ruined man. I have ten kids and nothing to feed them. Another voice yelled, Ruined and poor, you bastard, and you father ten kids. You should be strung up, not bailed out. The rich fill their time with their sports clubs and foreign travel, while these low-life scum fill the void between their wives' thighs and play checkers. Eh, I know him. He lives in Derbgalaf. He's not married. He's always showing up with some new story to get people feeling sorry for him. The smell of sweat and farts, that kid in front of me savouring his snot feast with such an appetite that I felt sick to my stomach, the increasingly scary panting of the beast behind me, and before I knew what I was doing, I shouted, I want to get out. And finally, I did it. I don't know where exactly, but whatever. I filled my lungs with air. Polluted air, sure, but a hundred times better than the air inside that bus. I flagged down a taxi. I thanked God when I arrived home. When I went to pay the fare, I discovered my wallet was gone. It had disappeared from my bag. <laughs> 